0: Well, our text this morning, uh, we've already heard it read, as uh, Brother Allen read, Psalm 119, 137 through 144. We are uh, looking in this stanza of Psalm 119, as we have gone through stanza by stanza, the longest chapter in, uh, in the Bible uh, remembering this is a, a song, and uh, I've said it before uh, as we've gone through this series, but uh, it is helpful to remember that when we, and when we read the Psalms, when we <coughs> preach the Psalms, we consider their, their meaning, that these are songs uh, that they were given to God's people to sing. And uh, that means a couple of things that are important for us. It, uh, it means that these are given to us to be our prayer. We sing songs to the Lord, we are praying to the Lord. Those, uh, when we worship through song, we are uh, singing those words that we sing to God. And so this psalm is a psalm that was given to you, believer, each one of you individually as your words to offer to the Lord. And so you are to sing this for yourself. When God gave the Psalms as uh, a a hymn book for his people um, in in the Old Testament, he gave these songs for the congregation to sing. That means it's for you to sing. So these are words that you can adopt as your own, um, as coming from you and unto the Lord. And um, secondly, it's to be sung together. So this is a song for you to sing unto the Lord, but it's also one that you share with other believers. So this is for everyone uh, in fellowship uh, to lift up to the Lord. That's important context before we uh, get into it. But uh, of course, throughout Psalm 119, there's a theme, because Psalm 119, it is song. 119 in the book. This is the 119th um, book in uh, the song as they, or in uh, the book of Psalms as um, we have uh, have them arranged in our Bibles. Um, and a song tends to have not a whole bunch of, uh, of different uh, themes or, or topics, but uh, uh, it tends to have a theme. And that's true of Psalm 119. The theme is the word of God. And so we have examined the Word of God. And as we look at Psalms, we are looking at, at what God's Word has to say about itself. And we're also looking at what we should have to say to God about uh, the Word of, of God. And that's the context that we bring into this Psalm. And today, this stanza of Psalm 119 is examining the righteousness of God's Word the righteousness of God's word. And when a student finishes a math assignment, how does the teacher evaluate that assignment? We have some people who have been teachers here in uh, different capacities. So um, could be math, could be anything else, but just for the sake of an example, we'll use a math assignment. A student has completed the assignment, has turned it in, so how does the teacher then evaluate it? The teacher has an answer key, Right? So the, uh, the t- teacher takes the student's work and then compares it side by side with, um, with the answer key. So hopefully the answers match. It's always nice when the answers match. If the student's answers don't match the answer key, then it tells you that something is wrong. So imagine the teacher now taking a red pen, and for every answer that didn't match, the teacher puts a red mark on the answer key, and then mails the answer key to the textbook publisher and demands that the publisher explain why the answer key failed to match the student's answers. Now, I assume that the textbook publisher wouldn't take that kind of mail very seriously, but let's imagine that it did. I think the publisher might reply with a postcard that said, hello, thank you for your note. The answers don't match because your student got the questions wrong. (laughs) Sincerely, yours. Sometimes we test God that way. Sometimes we test God that way. We test his sovereign will uh, in our lives against our standards and expectations. We test his rules against what we think ought to be right. And when they don't match especially when we encounter various kinds of sin and misery in our lives, uh, we're we're confused. And we wonder why God doesn't explain himself. We think maybe God got one wrong. Psalm 119 reminds us that righteousness comes from God. He is the standard for righteousness. And in the stanza contained from verse 137 through verse 144, the psalmist proclaims the righteousness of God's word and proclaims that, in fact, that God's word is righteous because God is righteous and his word comes from him. And if God's word is righteous, it is only righteous because it reflects the righteousness of God. For the psalmist, his faith in God's righteousness shapes his view of the world and of what happens to him, everything that happens to him. He doesn't judge God uh, based on what happens to him. He understands what happens to him according to his faith in God's righteousness. So as we open this passage, we'll see first that God's eternal righteousness is the standard for what righteousness means. And second, that trust in God's righteousness shapes the psalmist's understanding uh, of the world. And finally, that the righteous commandments of God teach the psalmist to delight in God forever because he trusts in God's eternal purpose. So, Verse 137 and 138 will begin. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. The Lord God is righteous. The psalmist begins, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Now we often examine God's righteousness in terms of things that he has done. Uh, or what he does. He judged the earth in the days of Noah when he brought the flood. And yes, that was a display of God's righteousness. He brought terrible judgment down on Sodom and Gomorrah. He did not spare the angels his wrath when they fell. He did not even spare his own son for the sin that was imputed to him. He will not... Spare judgment for your sin. All of those things are displays of God's righteous judgment. That's what I mean when I say that we often look at uh, and, and consider God's righteousness in terms of what he does. But God was righteous long before he performed any of those righteous acts. Verse 138 says, God appointed his testimonies in righteousness. That means that his righteousness exists before the law. So he had his righteousness and then he set them down in his testimonies. They are righteous because he made them righteous because they came from him and are a reflection of his righteousness that he possesses within himself. So God's righteousness is prior to the law. The law is righteous because it comes from him and reflects his character. God spoke the words of the law into existence out of his righteousness. Out of his righteousness and indeed, uh, verse 138 says, out of his his faithfulness, which reminds us that his righteousness is as eternal and as unchangeable as he is is eternal and unchangeable. So that when God says this is right, it is right forever. It is unchangeably and eternally right. Not situationally, not temporarily, not for today, but if God says it is right, then it is right forever. So God doesn't conform himself to an idea of righteousness that exists or existed outside or apart from him. So it doesn't say, the psalmist doesn't say, that God appointed himself according to some other testimonies of righteousness. It says he appointed his testimonies in righteousness, in his righteousness. So the righteousness of the law comes from him and he does not conform himself to some other outside higher authority because there can be no higher authority uh, than God. The law conforms to him, not the other way around. Now the psalmist presupposes God's righteousness in this stanza. He presupposes it. He ascribes righteousness to God first, with the very first words of the stanza, before he has given any hint of the reason why he's doing so. He simply starts by saying, Righteous are you, O God. He doesn't try to prove God's righteousness or explain it, he simply proclaims it Righteous are you, O Lord. And righteous and right are your rules. Now later on we will see that there is a reason why the psalmist is saying this now. There's a reason why he is proclaiming God's righteousness. He's dealing with evil and with enemies of God who sin against him and violate his law and in fact do harm to the psalmist. Uh, diminishing him and despising him. But the very first thing he says as he composes this stanza, he doesn't lay out his situation. He doesn't try to prove God's righteousness. He simply proclaims it. God is good. One of the great questions in theology and one of the great struggles for many people who deal with doubts in their walk with God is the problem of God and evil. There's a book about the subject, and it's a pretty good one, actually, so I'm not uh, disparaging it. But uh, its title always struck me as a little bit funny. It's called God and Evil, the Problem Solved. I'm not making fun here. It is a good book, but you can tell from the title um, how it's dealing with the problem. It starts with a perception of the problem. Uh, And then it goes about explaining and solving that problem to help you understand at the end why you can trust that God is righteous despite the existence of evil. So It starts with the idea that this is a problem and then tries to solve it. I don't say that's a bad or a wrong way to write a book or to uh, think about the issue or or deal with, uh, with struggles that people have. But I want you to notice that that is the opposite of what the psalmist is doing in this particular stanza. In this stanza, the starting point is God's righteousness. The psalmist presupposes that God is righteous, that his law is righteous, and he's going to see everything that happens to him and to his enemies. And he will view all of it through the lens of that understanding, that faith that God is good. So many people want to understand God's righteousness based on what happens To them. So I start with the assumption that there are problems. I see problems with what's happening in in the world. So explain that to me in a way that I can conclude that God is righteous. That's their starting point. starting point is there's a problem. The psalmist is simply saying, God is good. And now I'm going to view everything that happens. All of my circumstances in light of that rock solid understanding that rock-solid truth that God is righteous. And that will inform the way that I view everything. So many people want a way of reconciling God's righteousness to their circumstances in their lives, but the psalmist is doing the opposite. He understands what happens to him based on God's righteousness. Brothers and sisters, if you can hold on to that same kind of faith it will save you from so much misery in your life. If you can only cling to that truth, God is good. He is good and faithful from eternity. It will save you from so many doubts and struggles and so much pain in this life. We often say that we don't know why God ordains what he does. And in a sense, that's true. We don't see all of God's internal um, reasoning and purposes that he has not revealed to us. But in a much more profound sense, we know exactly why everything happens. We know exactly why everything happens. It happens because God is righteous. It happens because he is good and he is faithful. Because he's righteous. Everything he ordains, he ordains in righteousness. Everything that he allows to happen in your life, he allows to happen. He ordains because of his righteousness. It comes out of his righteousness for his eternally righteous purposes. That's why things happen the way that they do. They happen that way. Because God is good and faithful and he sees more than you do and he understands more than you do and he has purposes that are far greater than we can imagine and he is working them out. That's why it happens. And that's why I say that if you can cling to that faith so that whatever is happening to you, you can start with the proclamation every day, every situation, God is good. God is good. will save you from so much misery in life. And it will allow you to live a life of peace and joy. Now the psalmist takes that principle that God is unchangeably, faithfully righteous in everything that he does and he applies it to his particular situation. Let's read verses 139 through 141. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. The first thing that you might notice in these verses is the conflict. The psalmist remembers God's righteous rules, but the psalmist's foes forget them. Actually, you can read between the lines here. Um, You don't have to read too far between the lines to see that it's worse than just forgetfulness. (laughs) They accidentally (laughs) forgot God's righteous rules. His foes not only forget, they are actively sinning. Uh, they are enemies of God. They, in, in fact, they are sinning against the psalmist personally. He feels small and despised. They are opposed uh, to him. In part, this is just a simple application of that old problem of God and evil because the psalmist is obviously suffering. He doesn't say how um, exactly he's suffering. He doesn't say how the other guys are making out. Um, but it doesn't really matter. At a minimum, they are doing well enough to make life rough for the psalmist, and uh, the situation hasn't stopped yet. So we have the psalmist who is following God and obeying his commands, and then we have his enemies who are living as if there is no God. They have forgotten God. By some mysterious providence, God has ordained that these enemies are allowed to do whatever it is they are doing that causes the psalmist to be small and despised. Now, he could question this and say, God, why are you allowing this? He could ask that difficult question. How can you be good, God, if you allow this to happen? But he doesn't. Instead, he says, righteous are you, O Lord, Instead of his situation shaping his view of God, his view of God shapes how he understands the situation. God is good. So then how does the faith that he has in God's goodness shape his view of his situation? The psalmist gives us two relevant answers to this question in these verses. And they relate to two key fundamental observations of life in a fallen world. Sin and righteousness. Righteousness. The first answer is in verse 139. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. When the psalmist sees evil in the world because he presupposes God's goodness, that view of God's goodness is his solid rock. That's the unchangeable thing in his, his life. Everything else shapes, it around, it shapes itself around that understanding. So when he sees evil in the world, it doesn't ignite doubts It ignites zeal. He responds to sin even against him with zeal for the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ died for the ungodly to rescue us from the lawlessness of the world. That is what the psalmist is seeing. When he sees his enemies forget God's righteous rules, he is seeing Lawlessness of the world, and Christ died to rescue us from the lawlessness of the world. Sin, for you, if you were a Christian, is your former master, and you are its former slave. Sin, the master, death, and misery, its handmaidens. The best response that we can possibly have when we encounter those ancient enemies in the world is to be consumed by zeal for the kingdom of Christ that will overcome those old enemies and has rescued us from their bondage. We answer with zeal because we long to see them destroyed and we understand that Christ, our king, is the one who has overcome them. Titus 2, 11 through 14 reads, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. You see that? We renounce ungodliness. That's what we have been rescued from. It goes on. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives In the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God is righteous. Therefore, he despises sin and he is just. We share that hatred of sin, our old master, and we trust in him that he will bring justice. So when when we see sin and we see injustice in the world, it inspires a zeal, not only against the sin of the world, to see it conquered, but a zeal for the righteousness of Christ and his eternal kingdom. So the sins of this world ignite our zeal for good works because we hate sin and it makes us all the more eager to see our blessed hope in the Savior when he will bring about justice once for all. On the other hand, verse 140 offers a different uh, answer. We see the the zeal that's inspired uh, when we see sin um, against God and the world and verse 140 has a second uh, answer. Another way God's righteousness shapes the psalmist's understanding. When he looks at sin, it ignites zeal. But when he sees those times when God has demonstrated his righteous justice and mercy, it fills him with love. With love. As verse 140 says, your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. A love for God's righteousness The word the psalmist uses in verse 140 is promise. Your promise is well tried. God's promise and his word, when we talk about his word in the gospel, we can use that word in different senses, but fundamentally, his promise is and always has been a promise of mercy and grace, of forgiveness and deliverance from sin, a promise of salvation. God gave us his word so that we could know and trust in his promise, first and foremost, of salvation from sin. God's righteousness is most perfectly and most completely shown in his promise of salvation. The psalmist said, God's promise was well tried long before the incarnation of Christ. He was able to say to God, your promise is well tried. Your word is tested and proven true. He said that long before Christ came. Which only means that we have all the more reason to say the same thing. When you sing this psalm as your own, as the prayer of your heart, you can sing it with much richer Meaning, and with all the more confidence when you say that, God, your promise is well tried. God gave us all the proof of his righteousness that we will ever need in the saving sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in the gracious promise of salvation by faith alone in him. You see, when you hold that core understanding of God's righteousness, he wins coming or going. That's the point of these, these two uh, different categories. What happens when the psalmist looks at righteousness? It goes to show God's goodness. What happens when he sees sin? It goes to show God's goodness. It is all God's goodness. Everything else about his understanding forms itself around uh, that Trust. So you trust that everything, everything, good or bad, in this world will ultimately prove God's righteousness and is coming from his righteous decree. God is righteous. The good in the world proves his goodness that he proved once and for all on on the cross. The sin in the world only ignites our zeal for his kingdom. And we trust that he will use even that evil to the praise of his glorious justice. And mercy. Now, much of this stanza has had a present orientation. It involves the psalmist viewing his present circumstances in light of God's righteousness. The last three verses of the stanza shift to a future orientation. And more specifically, they have an eternal orientation that highlights the trustworthiness and the faithfulness of our righteous God. Verses uh, 142 through 144 read as follows Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. (laughs) The trouble and anguish in verse 143 is temporary. And I think it's. I I appreciate that verse 143 is sandwiched here as it discusses the trouble between two declarations of God's eternal righteousness. The psalmist has trouble and anguish, it's found him out. But he sandwiches that acknowledgement of trouble and anguish between. two proclamations of his understanding (coughs) that God's righteousness is eternal. It is forever. In fact, the real reason why it's often so very difficult for us (coughs) to see our circumstances in light of God's righteousness is because we are temporal creatures and we look at our temporal circumstances from our perspective in the here and now. And Uh, So when we talk about God's righteousness, most often we're simply talking about God is righteous right now, and I have circumstances right now, and so how do I reconcile the right now with the right now? Because we can't see, it's a lot harder for us to see beyond the right now. That's what our eyes see. But God wants us to trust in what he is is doing eternally, not just right now. God sees the right now in light of his eternal purposes. And that's where he wants us to place our trust. God was righteous before he gave the law. And he will be righteous and faithful forever. Everything we see now is God. Faithfully working out his eternal and righteous purposes. And when we reach eternity, everything God is working out now will be perfected and complete. And we will have an eternity to enjoy it. The psalmist talked about enemies of God who forget his law. The world forgets God's law because it lives for the here and now, it lives for whatever satisfies immediately whatever seems to bring happiness relief or comfort on earth but of course the most that the world can bring is a temporary happiness with temporary riches and comforts that pass away tomorrow so the world's righteousness at its very best and i mean it's very best the world's righteousness is at best temporary. Temporary and fleeting, ephemeral. But the psalmist says that God's righteousness is forever. The Apostle Paul taught that unlike the people who devote their lives to earthly things, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So you see the good and the pleasant things in the world, the things you like? God subjects it to himself. For his purposes. You see the things you don't like, you see sinners in the world going about their evil business. God is able to subject it to himself in righteousness. If you want to know how to live like a citizen of heaven, it is simple. Obey God. Obey His commandments and delight in, in them. Follow His righteousness. You are tasting and living in His kingdom. You are living in eternal purposes, eternal righteousness. You want to accomplish good in your life here and now, then focus on the here and now. But if you want to live for the good of eternity, then you follow God's law. You follow his word. You live in his righteousness as he has revealed it in his word. You can not only obey those commandments that he has given you in his word out of obligation, but in delight. You can delight in his commandments. We talked this morning in Sunday school about the difference between false piety and true piety. That piety doesn't have to be a, uh, a dirty word like the world wants you to think it is. F- false piety is the piety that says, you know, I want you to think that I'm a very nice person, follows rules here and now, out of obligation or because it makes me look good but true piety delights in god's word true piety delights in righteousness why because it's the kingdom of your savior because it's eternal because it is god's goodness in his word and commandments he has given you so that you can live in in eternity every act of righteousness and even even the sinful rebellions of the world, it will all redound to God's righteous glory because he is able to subject all things to himself. You will have trouble and anguish in this life. And the psalmist says he has trouble and anguish in verse 143, but that is temporary. God's righteous commandments for you are righteous for eternity. And your obedience has eternal purpose. When you sin, you have purposes for the next five minutes. But when you obey God's law, that obedience has eternal purpose. That God is working out for you and for his kingdom. And that is your delight. And when you obey God, not out of obligation or out of straining effort or out of a desire to look good to others, but you obey Him out of a delight in His kingdom, that is true, glorious, wonderful piety, and it honors the Lord. And that is how you join the Apostle Paul in straining, not for the next five minutes but straining for the eternal prize that lies ahead. My exhortation to you is put your faith in Jesus Christ. Put your faith in God for your salvation and for your life. The psalmist says that your trust in God has a purpose in verse 144. Give give me understanding. uh, Understanding of what? Of your righteousness, of your word. And why? That I may live. God's purpose for you in all of his commandments, in all of his word, God's purpose for you is that you may live. But the life that you live isn't just for a little while here. The life that you are living is eternal. God's purpose for you now is to live in a way that is preparing and equipping yourself for eternity and the righteousness that you will live in with him forever. So we end where we began. God is righteous. His righteousness isn't tested and measured against your own experience. If you're thinking and living in that way, then you are grading backwards. His righteousness is... To the contrary, his righteousness ought to shape your understanding of everything that happens to you. And you ought to repeat that to yourself daily. God is righteous. You ought to read his word so that that truth is ingrained in your minds every day, deeply, unmovably, so that whatever happens, your refrain is the same, your song is the same, and you sing with the psalmist Psalm 119, 137. Righteous are you, O Lord. Has someone sinned against you? Righteous are you, O Lord. Have you lost something dear? Righteous are you, O Lord. Has he showered a blessing on you that you didn't deserve? Righteous are you, O Lord. Has he used you to transform the life of a lost person? Righteous are you despite all of the efforts to witness to a loved one, are they continuing in sin? Righteous are you, O Lord. And you are working out your purposes. If you don't understand what's happening to you, the question you should ask is, what does it mean to me? And what a treasure is is it to me that I can know right now, even now, that whatever he is doing, whatever I am seeing, Whatever is happening in my life or around me, God is righteous and faithful, and his word is righteous forever. The truth is, he is God, and he never had an obligation to prove his righteousness to sinners like you and me. But if you want to see his righteousness, look to the cross, where his justice and mercy are revealed in glorious perfection in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ His justice is revealed on the cross in his wrath poured out in sin against the sin that was imputed to Christ that he bore on the cross. His mercy is revealed on the cross in the propitiation that Jesus made for sin when he allowed you to be forgiven because Jesus Christ bore the wrath on your behalf. Look to the cross and let it fill you with zeal. He has given you his commandments so that you can live. And not only live, but live for him according to his eternal righteousness with zeal. God is righteous. And his word is righteous forever. I exhort you, brothers and sisters, believe in him. Trust in his commandments. And live. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.